and welcome back to Historical, where we're doing history with a twist, looking at words that have shaped the world. Today, we're taking that quite literally and talking about words, what they mean, where we keep them, and who decides how we use them. We're talking, of course, about the dictionary. Now, a quick disclaimer here. There are many different dictionaries in many different languages, and they all have very rich and complex histories surrounding them. And of course, there are numerous languages themselves, both written and spoken, and they all have fascinating and storied pasts. And we will be talking about those in upcoming episodes. So English is by no means the definitive or the only place to start, but it is a place. And I'm going to kick off there simply because it's the language of this podcast. So for many people, a dictionary of the English language, sometimes also published as Johnson's Dictionary, is the first one that springs to mind. Actually, most people don't have any dictionaries springing to mind. Most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about Samuel Johnson or his dictionary. But they should. It's a story that goes back further than you might think. And it is scattered with betrayals, rivalries, murder, and some frankly idiotic decisions. But for those who have never taken this rollicking journey, Johnson's Dictionary appears to be the very first of its kind. Published in 1755, it was, and is, a remarkable achievement. But it is not, in fact, the first dictionary. Not even the first English dictionary, although it may be the first good English dictionary, which is another story altogether. The earliest dictionaries in England were actually not really in English at all. They were glossaries of French and Latin and Spanish words, with English translations and definitions alongside them. The word dictionarius was coined in about 1200 CE by John of Garland, an Englishman working in Paris as a university teacher and a grammarian and writing very prolifically in Latin. This always seems so odd to me. The idea that a man in the Middle Ages might be spending his time as a grammarian, worrying about conjugating verbs against the backdrop of barbaric tyranny, feudalism, frequent plague, very insufficient plumbing. But it is a reminder of the fact that the medieval period was populated by real, thinking, breathing humans with interests. And... It's not just an accidental blip that happened between two more important timelines. There was learning and art and progress happening. So it's not just the drunken aunt of history who doesn't get invited to good parties. John of Garland then coins the term that will eventually become the word dictionary. And his grammatical writing is much used throughout his life and for many years afterwards. And when I say much used, of course, I mean much used by people who are allowed to learn to read or write and can afford to do so, which in the medieval period is not many. So probably about the same number of people who actually think about Samuel Johnson over their morning toast. The next milestone comes in 1582, a good 300 years later, which I realize does nothing to help my point about the medieval period not being so bad after all. Richard Mulcaster, now a headmaster and teacher, starts pointing out to people the sheer lunacy of the fact that English is not the language of learning in the English-speaking world. He also suggests that 
if everyone in the English-speaking world was able to use words in the same way, it might be a little easier to take the language seriously. Up until now, and even for a, a little while after this, there hasn't been a standardized way of using English or even of spelling the words. So that should make you feel better if you're one of those people who panic every time you get a text message written by someone under the age of 21. The world is not ending. The people who dreamt up the language didn't even know how to spell for a good couple of hundred years. Richard Melcaster takes a stab at stabilizing the language with a pedagogical guide called Elementary. In this, he includes a list of 8,000 words. Very useful. Very handy. Unless you want to actually use them, because there are no definitions. Melcaster might have thought that definitions were totally unnecessary. After all, everyone knows words like elephant, glitter, and bum. But the list includes more obscure words like bribble-brabble, carpet knight, and flindermouse, which, with a few hundred years between us, could really use a bit of an explanation. Also, and I cannot emphasize too strongly how strange I find this, his list was not in alphabetical order. In fact, most of the word lists at this time weren't alphabetically arranged. If anything, they were arranged by subject, which is only useful if you A, already know what word you're looking for, B, already know what it means, and C, have a lot of time on your hands. Imagine the pauses in the family Scrabble game, while Auntie Mabel looks up everyone's words before allowing them to play. Children would go through puberty and be married off, still seated around the table, which is problematic in more ways than one. Even despite this monumentally bizarre decision, though, and to be fair, he wasn't the only one making it, Richard Melcaster is widely regarded as the founder of English lexicography, and his attempt to stabilize the language is backed up a few decades later by Robert Cordry. This poor teacher was deeply concerned about something that plagues us to this very day, the absolute incomprehensibility of younger generations. If you have ever had to turn on the subtitles just to get through an episode of post-90s television, Robert Cordry is your guy. He was of the opinion that the bright young things were mingling with so many other bright young things that they forgot altogether their mother's language so that if some of their mothers were alive, they were not able to tell or understand what they say. And so he created his seminal work, the first text that we know of, to really resemble the English dictionary as it is today, the table alphabetical. Now it has another title, which is so long and so unwieldy that we would be here until we had gone through puberty and been married off. So we'll just keep calling it the table alphabetical, but I recommend looking it up. It's very entertaining. This table contained about 2,500 words in alphabetical order this time, hooray, and with definitions. The idea of alphabetical order was so mind-blowing to people at the time that the table alphabetical actually contains instructions explaining that words beginning with A are at the front and words starting with V are nearer the end. Madness. Once people figured out how to use it, it proved quite popular and it made it all the way to four editions. But 
it was still considered mostly unreliable by critics at the time, which seems a bit unfair, considering that it was at the very least in a reliable order. Now, 12 years after Caudry's first publication, things really start hotting up. Thomas Blount released his dictionary, the Glossographia, complete with more than 10,000 words and more detailed definitions than any before. This was picked up by a man called Edward Phillips, who seems to have liked it so much that he pinched most of it and republished it as his own work called The New World of English Words or a General Dictionary. This set off, if you can believe it, a battle so fierce that interest in dictionaries skyrocketed. Again, there wasn't much to do of an eve in the days before Game of Thrones and Doctor Who. The two men argued back and forth in a kind of pre-digital age Twitter battle. And in the end, unfortunately for Blount, he died, giving Phillips a de facto victory in this feud and a victory that most people consider to be largely undeserved. The next big breakthrough is the one that we all know and love, Samuel Johnson. He was contracted by a group of dissatisfied booksellers who seemed to have decided it was high time to take the matter of standardised English into their own hands. Now, I imagine that they were tired of giving refunds for less comprehensive dictionaries, which turned out to be missing the word the buyer actually wanted. Samuel Johnson took seven years to complete his great work, and it was a great work. But it's not one without its quirks. He allowed small traces of his personality and views to leak into the words, preserving forever snippets of himself between the many pages. One of the more delightful aspects of this, unless, of course, you are French, is his absolute disdain for the francophone aspects of English. He left most of them out and dismissed the others in their definitions. For example, finesse he called an unnecessary word that is creeping into the language. Monsieur he called a term of reproach for a Frenchman. And ruse, a French word neither elegant nor necessary. Fortunately, this all means that we have a ready-made dictionary we can reinstate sans francophone words should Brexit ever really fully take hold and the French ask for all their words back. If anyone listening is French, it might lift your spirits to know that the Scottish don't fare very much better. Oats, according to Johnson, is defined as a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people. These quirks don't diminish the impressive scale of his achievement. Indeed, many, including myself, might argue that they increase it, as the dictionary he produced manages to revolutionise the form and capture something of the author at the same time. Add this to the fact that Johnson almost certainly suffered from undiagnosed and untreated Tourette's, and you really get a sense of how remarkable this work was. It's unsurprising, then, that it stood unrivaled for about 173 years until the Oxford English Dictionary finally arrived to take centre stage. This volume, the OED, is a household name now, and some form of it exists on the shelves of many English-speaking homes. And this is where our saga of words gets really weird, because as welcome as this book is in much of the English-speaking world, the same cannot be said to be true of one of its main contributors. 
The OED took nearly 50 years to complete, and one of the reasons it was ultimately able to be so vast and so thorough was because the editors realized early on that the task was simply too enormous for any one man or even for a small group. They invited members of the public to send through examples and quotations of words as they came across them whilst reading. And one man answered this call with particular gusto. One William Chester Minor. American-born and Yale-educated, Minor had served as a surgeon in the Union Army during the American Civil War. His mental health went into serious decline, perhaps as a result of seeing the horrors of war close up, and he was committed to a lunatic asylum, as mental hospitals were then called, in Washington in 1868. A year and a half later, he was showing no sign of improvement and relocated to London, hoping that the change would help his condition. This is really common in those years before mental illness, or indeed illness of any kind, is properly understood for people to try a change of air or a change of scenery or environment to try and cure whatever underlying condition they found themselves with. Unfortunately, this did not help, and often it didn't. Miner's paranoia became so extreme that in 1872, he shot and killed a man called George Merritt, who was on his way to work with six children and a pregnant wife at home. William Miner thought that he was coming to attack him and break into his home. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity, but was still imprisoned at the high-security Broadmoor Hospital, then regarded as a prison for the criminally insane. Because of his army pension, his rooms were relatively comfortable, and he was allowed to read and receive visitors, and one of those visitors was the widow of the man he had killed, who brought him books and news of the outside world. And this is a beautiful testament to the power of forgiveness and compassion. And either from her or from the booksellers he wrote to, he heard the call for volunteers from the team at Oxford and devoted the better part of the next two decades to combing through his library, compiling quotations of the various ways he saw words being used and then passing them back on to Oxford. His health continued to decline to the point where his delusions caused him to commit terrible self-mutilation. To his credit, James Murray, then the editor of the dictionary, who had recently found out about Miner's condition and his involvement, didn't forget him or abandon him. After much campaigning on Miner's behalf, he was released back to the United States, where he was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia and spent the last 10 years of his life in care. Against the backdrop of such tragedy, one likes to imagine that he may have found some comfort in the company of the words and books he treasured so much. James Murray actually paid homage to his enormous contribution to the dictionary by very publicly acknowledging that we could easily illustrate the last four centuries from his quotations alone. There are, of course, more people involved in this story than the ones we've had time for today, but even with just the big hitters in this small snapshot, it's quite a roller coaster. And that makes another of Samuel Johnson's original definitions very amusing to look back on. He wrote, dull, an adjective, meaning not exhilarating, as in, to make dictionaries is dull work. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Historical. If you enjoyed yourself, please head over to your streaming platform of choice and hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and a rating, and join us again next week, same time, same place, every Tuesday.